Hello, and welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Paula McIntyre was my guest on today's show. Paula is the head of Slow Food Northern Ireland, author of A Kitchen Year and Paula McIntyre's Down to Earth Cookbook, and former guest chef on Ready Steady Cook. She's a member of the Craft Guild of Chefs and the Irish Food Writers Guild, and is the former head chef at Gan House in Carlingford and Fontana in Hollywood. She also enjoys a swim in the absolutely Baltic Irish Sea, and I caught her on Port Stewart Strand straight after her swim for this interview to discuss slow food Northern Ireland and our food culture here. We recorded outside on the beach by Harry's shack, so you'll have to forgive the background mill of life at this beautiful beach hut. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So, here's Paula McIntyre. Paula, um, yeah, it's nice to be here. We're on Port Stewart Strand, and uh, yeah, welcome to the show. I've never recorded outside before. Oh, have you not? No, right? no, no. no, no. There's no better place. I mean, this is, <laughs> you're not, you'll not get anywhere better than this. Um, we're lucky with the weather, too. It's lovely. Yeah, well, I mean, I was worried it was going to start yeah. raining, but here we are. Uh, so, yeah, why do, why do you want to, well, when you start by explaining to us what, what exactly slow food is, um, I was trying to explain the concept to some friends of mine before I started the, before I came up for the interview, and I couldn't really put it in, put it really well. It was difficult, I think, to define. So, like, how would you define it? Um, well, it's a grassroots organization that, that's, um, that is represented in about 300 countries, um, it was started in 1986 by Carlo Petrini in Rome and it was a reaction um, to a McDonald's opening in the Spanish steps. <laughs> so that's so um, that was so it was a you know it was really like a, a political voice for food and, uh, and really it's it's grown from there from it's it's still based in Turin but it's represented in 300 countries and this week we should have been having our Terra Madre festival in Turin which is run every other every other year and that's a festival where, where people fly from all across the world except we probably wouldn't have been flying this year we had we had plans to take the train <laughs> so oh really ferry and trains and yeah so uh that was it well there's no point in um preaching this ethos about uh, sustainability and then flying all over the place so um but that's that's it in a nutshell it was really a reaction to fast food so that's why it's called slow food. So it's the antithesis of fast food. So. so why do you think we need it here in Northern Ireland? Like maybe some people would say that we have some of the best um, laws for uh, like standards of food and, and quality of farming in, in probably in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, why why should we care about slow food? I think um, slow food in in, um, in Ireland and in Northern Ireland. Uh, because there is partitioning <laughs> because of so I'm, I'm director of slow food in Northern Ireland and uh, I think we need it because um, really um, when I go when I go when I do go unfortunately still have to go to supermarkets to get some basics and actually the sometimes I look at families with their shopping trolley and it's appalling because nobody's they're not cooking it's just ready meals it's piles of pizzas piles and piles of pizzas um cheap cheap meat um no vegetables at all um the, probably the vegetables would be um the bag of oven chips and that's it uh peas a bag of peas at best so i think the the, the, the we have a necessity um to uh, slow food to educate people and re-educate them 
um, I'm I'm almost of a generation where my mom cooked uh, when I came home every day. You know, she cooked, and and uh, I know that's a bit old fashioned that my mother cooked, and then, <laughs> but actually, as soon as I was able to cook, well, either one of your parents, uh, uh, yes, it's never my dad. <laughs> old school. So I think that, I, and I was lucky, and I feel blessed to have that have been brought up in an environment where where I had food um, every day. I didn't have to worry about poverty. I didn't have to worry about food. And it's something I've never taken for granted. I remember uh, my granny was a health visitor in, um, in Coal Island and, and oh, lots of big families. And I remember she took me on her rounds. I must have been about five or six at the time. And I remember actually seeing a baby in a shoebox and thinking, and she, she was very ethical and really wanted to show me this is what it was. And those families ate well. Because they they had the basics, but it was like probably a vegetarian diet, but it was potatoes and it was made of soup that lasted. And I think that's the thing that we don't really have. That yes, that our families now and it's trendy to eat good food mm. and it's trendy, but it's very much I think a middle class thing. That um, maybe it's a social thing that that food good food is is middle class, and and there is poverty in the lower in lower classes and. And, and, and low-income families and it shouldn't be like that because food in this country has never been cheaper and yet it's never been more expensive in our health because it's too easy to go and buy ready meals and we had that horse meat scandal we know that it's that it's the, the, some of the, the food fraud that's happening I read somewhere recently about honey most of the honey is just diluted with sugar syrup or nuts. really? yeah, most, most of the honey and that's why if you know we talk about traceability if you go to somebody who makes their honey you know who produces honey you know exactly what it is and they've taken pride in that you buy it in a supermarket shelf you know to taste it there's sugar in it mm. you know yes there was maybe a bee floating around it at some stage but it's not you know <laughs> So a lot of that, I think, is is sort of linked to to the actual price of food. Yeah. Um, one of the, like it's it's just cheaper for people to to just get crap, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Um, like, how how do you deal with that? Like, what's your, what's your proposals to to kind of try and try and give people a bit of value back to food? Because I think it's, it's Carolyn Steele um, that I that I interviewed um, would have been what a month ago. She was talking about how food. How when you cheapen food, you cheapen life because food is life. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what what, what yeah, would I, be your I sort would, of remedy? I, I would there? agree with that, and I think you're, when you when you feed children crap food, you're imprisoning them in a cycle that they can't really. It's really hard to get out of. So I think the answer is to get into schools um, when they're when they're young. School meals um, are are not good, and I'm I'm be controversial and say that they they can be very good cross the line they're not good um, a lot of a lot of children are relying on those school meals um, as, a, as the main meal of the day but when you offer children chips or vegetables they're going to take vegetables and I know a lot of a lot of people because when I used to teach I would have taught girls and women that were involved in school meals and they said they had every day they had to cook carrots and peas and have them in a container as a token gesture towards fresh vegetables instead of making the vegetables palatable or make them exciting to me, I think, you know, vegetable. We, we just have this thing about protein, about meat protein, and you have to have chicken, or you have to have steak, and Christ, that's, you know, it's like, oh my God, I can't have, I, I, I can't have, it's the vegetables, your horse, you're, you're forcing them into it. 
vegetables should be exciting. We should the plate should be three quarters vegetable with a quarter of really good meat, and not this whole big. You know, I'm, I laughed during the, the start of lockdown. They had this massive <laughs> big. Oh, we've run out of pasta and rice. Who cares? Yeah, it's just that, it's just My carbohydrate. God, I was going up to a, going up to a farm shop that kept kept open from right through lockdown. I'm buying a bag of spuds, buying a bag of dirty carrots, and use the tops, beetroot, things, leeks, and we've we've ignored all those. And the one thing that I always hear that honestly really makes me mad is, oh, I don't have the time to to wash potatoes. I don't have the time, <laughs> and I'm like, oh right. And then I always say, do you watch do you watch soap operas? Oh yes, I watch soap operas. And I'm like, why the hell? Did you see you, Love Island last yeah, night? Why didn't you wash some <laughs> bloody spuds instead of watching crap on the TV? You can do know. both at the same time. You can. You can sit and scrub. <laughs> you can sit and scrub your spuds while watching Love Island. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I, mean, I think that's the thing. I think we need to get back and get people engaged with food. And you know, and and, re- and now I have been doing something or not doing something I visited Port Stewart Primary School last week and during lockdown they have a fantastic woman called Heather Query who's a parent of the children of a couple of children and they have a polytunnel and they also have beds and I went up there and just walked in and just a mass of tomatoes and they've got pumpkins they've got courgettes they've got turnips potatoes and during lockdown she took that on and got some of the kids of key workers who were still at the school so it's beautifully maintained and i think that's the thing we need to get these community community <laughs> gardens mm. and back to allotments i was talking to a friend in england last night and she said oh my allotment has kept me sane you know and i think that's the thing because you're you're at one with nature and i think that's the thing we need to go back we need to go back to these things that we that we used to take for granted like growing vegetables sourcing vegetables preparing vegetables and cooking and the same with meat that you know um we have we're lucky around here that we have fantastic meat and i know that when i wherever i buy meat i can nearly tell you the name of the cow or the name of the pig and that's the way it's a wee bit more expensive but the thing about it is when you get a lovely piece of say rare breed dexter beef or dexter or berkshire pig right what you get there is a flavor that will permeate through everything where and a small amount Whereas you have a big bit of meat that's been mass produced that basically tastes like a braised loofah. That, and that's it. That's the flavour. And unless you put salt and chip beef stock, it's not going to taste anything. So let's get back to those smaller amounts of meat and lots and lots of veg and protein. You know, protein from beans. Now, I love lentils. If you take a nice bit of guanciale, you know, dry cured guanciale, a small amount of it, like two ounces, and you. You, you will permeate cannellini beans or, or lentils and you get that beautiful taste and stick in some lovely seasonal leeks and lots of roasted onions and, and I don't care what anybody says you do not need all that we don't need all this meat we don't and I'm not a vegetarian I'm just an advocate for good meat and for and for proper vegetables you know? I definitely think that's something there that, that people perhaps don't understand that like if you're just gonna pay for the slightly better meat, like it's 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 much better for you in the long it's, run. It's better like for everybody. You're you're <laughs> because um, one of the things that I discovered recently, actually, that really got me interested in slow food and the reason uh-huh. I looked you up was um, sort of examining how bad our like modern food production has become. Like the the meat is packed with omega six fats that lead to like heart disease and hypertension and and problems with with blood pressure and 
um, instead of like the omega three fats that you that would have traditionally been in, in meats like that 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 are really great for for um, like your bone health and your brain and and uh, I think it's that I read that. Uh, like the average carrot or something like that from from 1940 was like three times as nutritious as the ones we would buy in the supermarket today. So like my mind was kind of blown and I was like, does that mean that people who were around in in the 40s and 50s, like we we imagine them as being like these skinny, like mal malnutritious, like just like poorly poorly fed, sort of skinny like wrecks that are sort of dealing with rationing in the war. And they might have ended up being sort of healthier than than, than us. But you look now, heart disease is a tiny bit exactly. scooch over so it's like just a bit closer yep. to your face heart disease is a new thing you know it really is because in the 1950s people ate meat but they ate, they ate pork that was properly reared and as you say that fat that's good fat now they're saying um, now they're saying oh you have if you have a heart attack don't eat margarine eat mm. butter whereas years ago it was like eat margarine for health and I, I mean we realise now you know that something that manufactured <laughs> That probably wasn't even manufactured for food in the first place. Um, and then, you know, I think we need to go back to natural, to the way things were. We've been messing around too much. As you say, adding things to meat, why the hell would you need to add something to meat? You know, it's just stupid. Mm. You, know, you know, it is silly. <laughs> you know what I say? And I think, and all these bloody vitamins, people, you know, these vitamins, I mean, what's that about? You know, we don't need to fit you. Well, if you eat, a good, a good balanced diet with not that much vegetables mm. in it. Like even though you take a potato, if you bake a potato, there's vitamin C in that. People don't know that. There's you know, vitamin C in a potato? Yeah, because that wee layer between the, 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 um, the skin and the flesh. That means you've got to eat your skin. You have then. to eat your skin. You have to eat your skin. <laughs> yeah. Or boiled potato. You know, just a boiled potato in this jacket. Give it a good scrub. I don't peel carrots anymore either. I get, get good carrots and I'll give them a scrub. You know, and that's it. And, and cook them, roast them. Mm. You know, don't. Um, I mean, like preparing food um, doesn't need to take that long either. I mean, t- to be honest, one um, I, um, I got this great cookbook called The Four Hour Chef this year, and uh, it really sort of like made me consider about. About, like when you get like a cookbook generally it'll maybe get it'll be like like a hundred simple recipes and you open it and like the list of ingredients is like as long as your arm and, and everyone's then, different yeah and, yeah and there's like 16 <laughs> different like pieces of specialist equipment that you need and 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 he's very much like you know all, he has like a hundred dishes that he has like through the book and they all like there's like a specific collection of them it's just four ingredients and that's it and it's like like it's meant to be simple fast but it makes you appreciate the flavors that are in there you're not just like blasting it with loads of extra stuff and you can really appreciate like the quality of the food you're eating because you're getting like three or four quality ingredients instead of a load of cheap um rubbish but yeah you can make food taste beautiful without with a minimum of effort Mm. but it's all about thinking about it thinking what can i do to make this carrot taste really delicious so I can there's so I can steam it it's not going to be great and it's still going to be okay but I can put some oil I can put some fresh thyme I can you know put in some black garlic I can roast it and, and then take it in and I have to say I do like to do that and then finish it off with a bit of butter in the pan you know <laughs> and nearly brown the butter and then hit it with some vinegar and you'll taste that you don't need meat you know and I, I think that's I was in Copenhagen earlier on this year and they did a thing where they just pretty much um I went to this restaurant and they'd shaved the carrot, you know, on the mandolin, and then just scrub, rolled it all up and tied it with butcher string so it was like a steak. Um, and then they had really put it into a pan and they fried it off, 
and sealed it off in oil and then they just started adding butter and just anointing it with butter with whole bits of garlic loads of thyme in it and it smelled like steak because of the garlic but it was be- and it tasted beautiful because it was obviously the carrot was, was very good in the first place and I've done that where I've done it like um, you know sliced the whole carrot on the mandolin and like it's like a carrot and then tied it with butcher string and fried it in the pan really gently and put loads of, and it still looks like a carrot but it's so, like, so you're it's slicing still, it really yeah, thin, like, like potato dauphinoise yeah, or something like but, that. But, and then tying it with butcher strings so it still looks like a carrot. There's quite a lot of work in that. Like you, wouldn't, you wouldn't do it for 20 people. You, know, do <laughs> you do it for an intimate dinner for two. But it's still, you know, when you, and you cook it. And then we've got a lovely um, hand-rolled butter here called Abernethy butter. And if you put in uh, maybe some of their black garlic butter or their smoked butter, you know, it just, it takes these, I know I'm obsessed with carrots, by the way, I need to tell you that, absolutely obsessed with them, and I just, you know, think they're one of the nicest vegetables, I really do, it's, we have, we're really lucky here, because we've got the best soil for them around here, reclaimed sandy soil, so if you go to McGilligan or Myro, um, and you get these lovely carrots, and they're just sweet, and they're beautiful, and, and I think that's, that's, to me, that's sort of the epitome of what we do around here, it's like, you know, really good vegetables, grown the way they should be grown, but then taking them to another level with just different flavours, you know. Why, so, why is the sandy soil good? Uh, apparently that's what, I'm not a gardener, but apparently sandy soil, I, you know, I think with carrots, um, if you have a wee stone, uh, it hit, if the, when it's growing up, it hits the stones, that's where you get all knobbly. Whereas sandy soil, it will nice and straight, and you get your good, good non-knobbly carrots. Not that I have a problem with the knobbly carrot, but, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah. All carrots matter. All, all carrots matter. <laughs> we were wearing a very nice orange carrot uh, carrot <laughs> jacket. A, a, a woman obsessed. <laughs> I can tell I'm going to be seriously hungry by the end of this conversation. Um, so uh, what would be the proposals that, that you at Slow Food would suggest that, that we need to make to, or the changes that we would need to make to farming in Northern Ireland to make it? Well, yes. Yeah, so what, 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 what things do we need to change in your opinion? Well, I think the whole ethos of slow food is small farms. So obviously not these big mast farms where where um, where pigs are um, you know crammed into conditions where chickens are crammed and you know it's it's that going back to going back to the way things were and I think that's the whole ethos of slow food is that I've heard it described as the way our grandparents farmed and the way our grandparents produced food. And and I think that's the thing that we have to go back we can't afford not to go back and not and have, we have to go back and have these smaller farms. So, look, a farm years ago would have had, you'd have had some crops, you'd have had some pigs, you'd have had some cows, you'd have something for milk, you'd have had a goat to, to clean up the shrub, you'd have had a few chickens for eggs and then you'd have whacked the chicken for lunch as a treat. And I really do think we need to, we do need to go back to that. We have a, a farm in Ballycastle called Brockgammon Farm it's a goat, essentially a goat farm, but they also do veal. So that was something that, that the goats, the male goats, were going to be incinerated. So now they produce them for meat, the them for meat, and um, and also the, the male calves. So Irish rose veal, which they're both beautiful meats. Um, I mean, goat is the most eaten meat in the world, and yet if you try to sell it to anybody in Northern Ireland, oh, I wouldn't eat that. And the thing is, in Brockgammon, they're, they're doing these lovely, they do some street food. They've got a cat when, when they used to have festivals. But they also have a cafe where you can go and have a billy burger. And I think that's what we need to start eating things like that. Um, there is a, you know, I think we maybe um, a more protein. And I really love to see that there's 
places in um, England like Hobmadods who are growing British quinoa, they're growing lentils, they're growing heritage beans and peas and but with like the Carlin pea, which um, you know are also called the black badger, which is a beautiful, beautiful pea. Um, they, and they dry that. I love cooking with it. To me, it's a, it's very similar to a Calabrian black chickpea. Okay. And if you go to Italy, the Calabrian black chickpea would be celebrated and they'd have a festival around it. But um, you know, Carlin peas, but thank are not. But thanks to Homidods and companies companies like that, we're we're re re refining these heritage brands of, of, of our heritage varieties and I'm celebrating them and bringing them back into into the food into our food the way we eat mm. like that that brings us quite nicely to the idea of uh, food culture yes um, it's something that I, I that's brought up in some of the the videos I watched on on slow food and from slow food UK like what it's also something that Carolyn Steele actually mentioned when I was talking to her about um, her book Citopia just go read it it's amazing I, I was I heard away. the food program um, that yeah. she was on the food program and it was just mind blowing. I think I listened to it about five times. So. <laughs> She's great, um, but she talks about a food culture. Like, what, like, what does that mean to you at, at Slow Food, or do you personally? Um, I think globally, a food. You know, if you look at different countries, it's um, a, a food culture. So, if you look at Italy, their food culture is very regional. So, the food in the north of Italy is very different, obviously, the food in Puglia or Sicily. Um, even if if you look at um, look at England, you know the food the food their food culture in the north is very different to to the south. Mm-hmm. I think the same here. I mean the food that we would have that we would our heritage in Northern Ireland very different to Cork, and yet we're all one island. Mm-hmm. Um, and very much I think this is the thing I think that um, we need to, to to celebrate our food culture more. And I think we were doing this because of tourism. And we had this mass influx of tourists in Northern Ireland we'd never had before. And suddenly we realised that we have to celebrate what we have here. These people are coming over from, from all around Europe and from America and Australia and Korea and Japan. And they do not want Thai chilli beef or chilli chicken pasta. <laughs> Right, you know, with tobacco onions all thrown over it. Because they want, isn't that true? Well, no, they you're right. They realise that they actually want it. One of the things that we, and I've been doing, we, you know, we're doing some work with Food NI and with Tourism NI, and we realised that, that fish was a big thing. That tourists want to come. They, they, look at, they look at Ireland, this wee speck on the map, and they, it's surrounded by sea. And you come over here, what do we do? We export all our fish. And you go into a restaurant, not obviously Harris Shack, which where we're at now, <laughs> but who go to Greencastle and pick up sustainable fish. And but you go to a lot of them, and they have on the menu local sea bass. Sea bass is not; it's illegal to fish sea bass commercially in these waters. And yet you see local sea bass, and then you see salmon. And so the local sea bass is actually farmed in Turkey. And then you see salmon that's well, been our fun. local Lo- sea bass is from Turkey. You cannot sell. See, you cannot sell. You can catch a fish out there, and that sea, right? But you can't sell that to anybody. Why not? Because it's illegal. It's about commercial according fishing. To who, according to who? The government, and it's and but fisheries. Is it, is, it, is it a UK thing, or is it an EU I, I think, thing, or is I think it? it's uh, I think around here. I mean, you can get wild sea bass in Cornwall, for example. So it's different there. But these waters, it's illegal. You can't fish. That's, that's just, weird. So we're not allowed to actually take advantage of the fish that are, are oh, right there. Oh, you can. You can, but it's just that sea, but you sea bass are in, You can't sell it. But if you're lucky enough to catch it, look, why would, you know, it's endangered. So let's look at um, 
Let's look at mackerel, gurnard, wolffish, hake, you know, that you can catch around here. Ling, what, look, you celebrate those, use those. Don't just ignore, but, but, but my point is you can't get local sea bass and yet it's on bloody menus. Or you get salmon, which is farmed God knows where. So it's all, it's farm fish. And it's um, good seafood, good fish is rare here. I mean, I know here in Harsha during the summer, there was one boat, the boy Matthew, that went out and fished lobster. And everybody had it here. And that's to me, is as sustainable as you'll get because it's there, out there, and you bring it in here and it's cooked in that barbecue there. And that's it. Within probably four hours of it being caught. And that's the thing. Whereas um, a lot of places, fish, and that, that what my, my, to go back to the point was that tourists wanted local fish. And you have this Irish paradox all through Ireland where you, can, you can't get the fish because it's all been sent away. And we don't have a, you know, there's Loch Ness pollen. It's sent to Switzerland. You never see it right. If you go to a restaurant right there, very, very rare to see Loch Ness pollen. And I think that's, that's something that we need to address. And the thing, you know, so this is when we talk about food culture. I think that we, we have this, we have all these foods that are part of our heritage, but we're not interested in them. Um, and we've sort of ignored them, but or we have ignored them, but we have to get back to that. You know, people that come to this country to visit want what of the place. So they want the meat from here, they want vegetables, they want traditional men recipes. And if you go back to even like Dulce, like fifteen years ago, I don't I'd turn my nose up at Dulce. But I like Dulce, but I wouldn't use it in cooking. Now I use it all the time. Like I'm as guilty as anybody else of being, you know, 53 year old hipster when it comes to food <laughs> so you know and that's the thing I think we, we need to we're, we're back we're rediscovering things only because people have come here and demanded it and now thankfully we're starting to appreciate what we have I think you know as, as a as a as a as people in this country and not just that we're catering for tourists and that's maybe something that that, that the um, that this pandemic has done is to make us look inwardly at what at our food and at our food culture. We have a new place up in um, in Korean called Native Seafood, and a young fella called Stevie had taken over the old Korean yacht club to um, to to turn it into a restaurant. And during the pandemic, obviously couldn't. So he went over to Greencastle, picked up sustainable fish, pa- packed it all up, and sold it. And was doing was has been doing brilliantly. He's got a restaurant now. But again, it's very much that he's, uh, you know, it's very casual. So you go and get your lobster roll, uh, you'll get a longestine po' boy, you'll get oysters done three ways, uh, le- lovely lemon sole on the bone, but it's all from here. Mm. And then because everything's changing now, the seasons are changing, um, he'd be introducing different fish, like scallops and crab, and then moving on like that. So I think that's, that's, that's and people have really embraced that. But I was talking to some of the days as if somebody else asked me one more time for sea bass, I still got to kill them. So, <laughs> you know, so there is that thing we need to re-educate people. Sea bass, farm fish is not good. That's great. Like, of course, Northern Ireland, we're never happy. We're always going to no. complain about something. But, <laughs> but that, that's, that's interesting that you say that we, we kind of had, had lost our, our food culture almost um, for, I don't know, maybe you'd say it's 20, 30 years. Maybe we were too busy shooting at each other. But that, that, that we've been almost forced to rediscover it, yeah. to sell it to the tourists. I know, exactly. <laughs> well, if you take something like bread there, right, you take bread, and we would have, like, I remember my granny making wheat and bread and making soda farts, 
And then apparently what happened was bread came in, pan loaf, made by the Charlie Wood method, that just forced through, not allowed to ferment properly, not not got, got lots of sugar, lots of salt, lots of things to make it to, to speed up the process. But that was seen as a sign of posterity. If you were able to, if if you were able to afford to have your own, you were able to afford to buy bread. That was that was a great thing. You were something else. And then if you were making sodas, like, ooh, you know, it's a bit scabby, you know, doing that sort of thing. But we've come full circle mm. now, and we and you know, sardo. Um, another. Oh, yeah, that's that's the the absolute hegemony in the middle well, class. Well, that's it, now. <laughs> and I know, like it, that's it's one of those things that you know there are some, there are people that are doing beautiful sardo properly and take making it over two days, but then it has been there is a buggeration of it in supermarkets where it's just Charlie Wood sardo. You know, <laughs> it's like let's let's go back to and I you know I've heard people saying oh I went to this bakery and the sardo was four pounds. I'm like and. But I can go and buy a bag, a pack of Kingsmill for a pound, and I'm like, go for it, you know. And it's like that. This is, I think, this is what we need to realise that the value of food and the value of that, the craftsmanship, the the ingredients, the sourcing, uh, the time, and it's all. And that's slow. That to me is slow. Slow food. That you're taking time with things. You're taking time to make bread properly. You know, a two day ferment. And that you can't you can't rush that, and at the end that should be four pounds. It's, it can't be it can't be two pounds because because then the person who made it, you're de, you're devaluing them and their skill. And I think that's the thing. You know, it's like if you go to a good restaurant, and you have to pay a bit more, it's because you're paying for the chef's skill. So you go to a, a restaurant where you can get te- three courses for ten quid. Yes, because everything's going into a deep fat fryer into the microwave. Of course, it's going to be ten quid. I would rather pay ten quid for one one starter than you know 10 quid for three courses and that that's the thing and i think i do think there are that we do have i think i i hopefully and maybe i'm being naive think that we are starting to realize about food and the more i mean we complain about social media but actually at least with twitter and at least with instagram people are becoming more aware of of, of these food scandals and and, and of like you know, farm fish is not. It's not. It's not good. You know, it's not. It's not natural. We, and we need to go back to what the way things, you know, naturally were produced. Like, what would you say to to the the? Because I I do totally agree with you, but I can I can also hear people's critiques going. Oh, well, that's all well and good for you to say. You can spend ten pound on a starter. We can't afford to. Actually, like, I can't. Well, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, okay, my, my even, that's even more relevant. Yeah, but that's even then, no. that's, then that question's even more relevant it now. Is, yeah. Like, like, what, what would you say to the, that sort of the, those sorts of attitudes? Like, how would you say we, we overcome that? I, I think. Well, first of all, I think we need to be cooking more at home anyway. But if you're going to go out to a restaurant, go to a restaurant that's ethical, that that they care about food. You know, they care where the food's been sourced. Uh, they, you've got people actually, you know, preparing vegetables. Not buying it in. My, my big bugbear is those big bags of pre-peeled whitened potatoes. And, they, and so many places use those. And they don't taste like potato because they, you can't cook them properly. They've got this whitener that affects the outside. And, and also, what is that whitener? Because it's not natural. <laughs> you know what I'd say? So, and I think that's the thing. We need to go back maybe to just... Um, but as w- with your question, can we not... You can't afford, I think, to eat 
cheap, nasty food. I mean, I went up last week, for example, to Native Seafood. There was two of us, and we had, I had a, a, a lovely um, lobster roll that had come out of the sea there. I had some squid with Islander kelp pesto and sourdough bread. And I had, um, I, I, and I had a, um, a crab benedict. So between the three of us, right, or the two of us. And that was 30 quid. And you're able to bring your own wine. I think that's, I think that's very reasonable. It was loads of food. It was all sustainable fish. It was using, combining it with local ingredients, you know, local good ingredients. You know, like um, the sardo and the islander kelp. And, and, I th- and it was all delicious. And that was £15 each for lots and lots of food. And I think that's, I think that's reasonable. So I think it's about you know, sourcing your restaurant as much as you'd source your food at home and go and, and try. And, and also restaurants now uh, are happy for you to just go and have a starter. I'd rather go in somewhere and have a really beautiful £10 starter and a glass of wine and go home and have three courses of crap. You know, with not good wine, you know. No, you you definitely like speaking to something uh, that, that, that people should maybe appreciate that, that, that food takes time and effort and, and good food takes takes a lot of time and, and care. Um, what, do you, or is there a lot of things that Slow Food are doing in order to try and encourage people to maybe grow some of their own food? Oh, because, absolutely. I don't know, because... I've suggested to my mum because she's talking about she's retiring next year and we were talking about uh, she was like oh we you know if I retire on this day I get this much money but you know I'd, I don't want to stay working there I want to get be like I want to work till this day and then so it was like well you know if you're if you're missing out on 15 or 20 pound a month why don't you just grow some some of your own food and then that'll just pay for it uh-huh. and, and she was like oh yeah no, that's not a bad idea um like, is there a lot of things that you're sort of trying to help people grow their own food? Or do you, are you, is there, like, I don't know, community allotments or something that you're with, working with on? With Slow Food, there's, there's Slow Food communities um, and, and throughout, excuse me, throughout the world. So you'd have, um, you know, we've got a seed bank. You can get seeds, access to seeds, uh, you know, heritage seeds with, a, you know, the, um, with, with older seeds, older varieties of vegetables. Um, I know that and it's important to keep those alive. The same with... with um, and I'm, I'm digressing here, but you know, with, with rare breed meat, um, Slow Food would work, work work closely with the Rare Breed Survival Trust, and the whole their whole ethos is eat it to keep it. So if you don't if we don't eat Dexter beef, it'll die out. If we don't eat uh, moily Irish moily, if we don't eat um, uh, we don't eat the English lot pig, it'll die out. So that's the whole thing. We need to do that. Same with vegetables. You know, there's so many varieties of carrots, for example. There's loads of varieties, you know, like of greens. There's loads of varieties of cabbage. And I think the thing is to get back into that. I don't grow my own vegetables, I have to, because up until um, March, I was too busy. But but now, um, you know, I would go and I would, like, for example, I took a lot of the tomatoes from that from the polytunnel in Port Street Primary School. And at the end of the month, I'm doing a, a dinner with in uh, Arcadia with... Um, with that, it's a slow food dinner, and I do it with Lakata. So we're we're having the brewery. So I'm serving some snacks with a different beer, a bit of crack with the, um, you know, hopefully you know, talk. So I've got some of the tomatoes fermented. I've got some of them pickled. I've got some made into sauce. Uh, I've got uh, fermented courgettes, things like that. So that'll all be incorporated in, into with other ingredients and with a glass of beer. But the food, the money that we make, because nobody's going to be paid, and I'll cook and we'll have a chat and we'll 
donating a beer, hopefully, some of it. <laughs> and uh, um, that money I'm going to take and we're going to provide the five main primary schools in the North Coast with um, heritage fruit trees. So sometimes their schools have don't really have the... The, you know, there's nobody like I know that Heather has taken control of the of the polytunnel on Port Stewart, but sometimes schools will have a polytunnel or a garden, and then you go off for the summer when it's at its most prolific, and nobody's tending to it. You come back, you've got a compost heap. So, with a fruit tree, they're self-sufficient. You can ignore them, but you can also educate children about you know what an apple should taste like. Look, that apple that's grown inside, the, inside the tree a bit isn't going to be as red as the one outside. So it's, you know, it's about showing children how how fruit grows and, and then how to preserve that fruit. And I think that's, you know, I think that's the thing is that we, 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 we need to go back to more seasonal eating. I know it's very trendy now, but that's the way we did it. Well, trendy doesn't mean bad. No, it doesn't. No, and it's, from that point of view, it's great. But, you know, we need to, everything's seasonal. You know, fish is seasonal, lamb is seasonal. Vegetables are seasonal, fruit, fruit is seasonal, and, and then we need to store the way we used to. My, I mean, my grandparents, Rana used to talk about, they, they had a pig that was slaughtered, and the real treat was the griskin, which is these wee bits of two, you only get two in a pig, but off uh, beside, the, beside the rib, and that was a real treat, and then everything else was salted for the winter, and you took a bit off that, bit that off, and and use that, and it was you no know, the fat as you as we talked about earlier. That's good fat. You know, we were starting to realise that now, and we need to go back to that just that slower way, and as much of that too. That with slow food, is not even just that you that you feed your children well, but it's how you eat. We don't don't sit in front of a TV, eating it. Sit at a table with your with a knife and fork, and eat properly, and talk to people, and engage with people, engage with your family. I think that we need to go back to that as much as anything. Mm. You know, I go to Italy, I used to go to Italy quite a lot. You see kids in restaurants at 8 o'clock at night behaving impeccably and sitting there in their high chair and just eating pasta. You know, and here in this country, it's like you see kids, like they're high in sugar, they're, 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 they dirty the windows, they're throwing stuff up against the windows. And, you know, it takes a, a, a SWAT team of cleaners after they've left. So I think we need to go back to... Just, look, they're just being themselves. But they Let them express go, themselves, No, Polly. they're not. They need, they're just being badly behaved. <laughs> and we need to go back to a wee bit of old-fashioned manners in every way. And it's about kindness. It's about thinking about the waitress that's got to clean up after your messy children. You know, and we're living in a time of, you know, where restaurants need to get cleaned up quickly and have the next table. Mm. Yeah, so there. Yeah, That's controversial. <laughs> it's all right, don't worry. Um, I always tell people, don't don't worry, there's not that many people listen to this anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> but the, the fruit trees thing is really interesting. I really love that idea um, because something that, that I, that I keep, sort of keep coming across in, in reading about these kind of uh, concepts is when people are talking about we need to sort of be able to understand what it what it is to to invest time in something and to to kind of realize the the seasonality of of, of our world and to appreciate that things change slowly and that we you know we're all part of like a big cycle of things that are coming around very very slowly and like getting kids to to see like a fruit tree grow in and and sort of you know, getting bigger and, and producing fruit once a year, and just that that kind of acknowledgement that that that's how people maybe used to to 
to gauge the time and it's just like you know that's, oh that's... the leaves are changing that means this is in 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 blossom now and and you know that was their their way of sort of gauging the the passage of time it wasn't you know their constant like every three minute checks on their phone to no. see what you know <laughs> it was the blossom in may mm. and then you get your your wee buds of apples come on and then you get your fruit and i thought the reason why i thought fruit trees because when they leave school in june the the blossom have just finished they've been able to see the blossom but when they come back they're going to be able to harvest the fruit and i think you know and then also cook with it hopefully even even just eat it even just eat an apple and go back to the way apples used to taste because it's not been polluted and you can you know slice an apple and oh it's juicy it's a because i think we've we've supermarket apples don't taste of anything because they've been gas flushed and flown around the world and, and I think that in, with supermarkets too there's too much availability of food you know you can get a, you can go, I can go up to the supermarket now and get strawberries well they're done now and I can go over in, into the veg section and well, they are more expensive but yeah, that's but it they don't taste of anything now I mean I think we need to we need to celebrate these pockets of, of when food is seasonal so now we've got apples, so let's concentrate on our apples and our pears and our plums. And, and what I do is... Um, oh, I think plums are done. We're plums on are apples done. now. My yeah. mum has a plum tree. So that we've no, plum, no plums, damsons, but we've loads of apples. I don't know moment. about the damsons. There's some damsons, some damsons. I know about the tree that I have. Um, and, and my apples are, ju- are just done. Mm. But um, and every year, I, think, I give a load to them away. This is the crop this year. I've only one apple tree. The crop this year was magnificent. So gave the, the, the apples away, a lot of them, and then I've frozen some of them, you know, I've looked up some recipes and, and I found this Russian one for where they brined apples, so I took the smaller ones and I've, I've done them in like a maple salt brine. I don't know what it's going to be like, but I've got two big kilner jars of it, and how bad could it be? You know, it's going to be... You didn't waste a lot of money on it. No, it's your own apples. Was a bit of salt, <laughs> bit of salt and some maple syrup. And, um, you know, and made, uh, you can make apple butter. Um, there's just so much you can do with apples, apple chutney. All these things, that, you know, same with plums. Um, I did some, um, I like fermenting things, so I did some um, salted plums. And it just, it's lovely to see them because you put in these, the plums in and, and they've got the yellow flesh on the skin. And now I can see they're just permeated with this, they're completely purple throughout this flesh is. And they've been in, I'd say that that's been for about a month. So I can't wait to see what that's like. And, you know, and I just imagine the salted, sharp plums with some lovely crispy pork or, you know, so it's like, and I think that's the thing. We just need to, when you have flavours like that, the other thing I did was I made plum wine. Plum wine is another thing. It's of a place. Any wine you make, it's just of, you know, you go into, a, you go in and you buy wine that's been produced from one vineyard and it tastes, all tastes the same. But with a plum, it just, it's got that terroir thing. It, it tells you exactly where it has that taste of where it's from. And every every batch of wine's different, you know, because there's so many different things that will have an impact on it. So I've got this plum wine on the go. I sort of think, right, that's great. And it's like, that's a taste you can't buy. That's just something you can produce yourself. It's the same if you ferment something, you know. I have some fermented tomatoes from gin, and I've got some late season fermented tomatoes, and they're all completely different. And you know, and it's people. Are, it's great actually. People, my next door neighbour, uh, rang me and said, "Look, I've got some red currants." And I went over. I mean, she had red currants. <laughs> I mean, I've never. I I can, I've said, "Oh, so I've pickled them, which are lovely with oily fish with mackerel, really lovely." And I and I just smashed some lemongrass 
and uh, and some pink peppercorns and put it in with a pickle and it just really changes it and uh, and then you've got the juice from from the you know the, the pickle liquor and I thicken that up with agar agar and you know have that as a garnish and and you know the, another the rest of it uh, I made into a jelly red currant jelly and I flavoured that with meadow sweet so meadow sweet's free it's the side of the road and you know, and all, and I, I'm always standing. When I was standing picking the meadow sweet, so I, I pulled up on the main road and I'd seen it. I thought, right, it was a massive batch. I thought, I'm going to take. Do this. you have like boxes or bags in your I'll car have loads for these of bags. I've got these big boxes. <laughs> <laughs> I've got big boxes and bags, always and bowls, right? So I'm at the side of the road and I'm picking this and I'm bent over, and this car pulled up and the and the woman got out. The driver got out and said, "Are you okay?" And I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. Are you sure? Do you need any help? I said, no, I'm just picking metal sweet. And she's like, right. And I know she went away and thought I was a complete nut job, which is fine. <laughs> so I've got lovely metal sweet salt now that I dehydrated and that, you know, so. Oh, I just want spot metal sweet. What does it look like? Metal sweet looks like, uh, it looks like cow parsley, you know, white, but it looks like it's burst. So it's like, a, you know, it's like, it's like this massive shock of like frizzy, white hair stuck on a stalk okay. and you'll see it it, it it grows in damp so you'll see it round you know bits of the road of, that maybe have a stream run at the back of it you'll see it there I you, crash because I'm I'm like driving and looking for the meadow sweet on the way back even, it's, it's, it's coming <laughs> to an end now Josh so you need to get you know quite I like it this time of year because it's really intense so I actually wait as long as I can for the meadow sweet so it's like well, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll have to definitely look out for that on the drive home. Uh, so h- how would you say that um, the pandemic and the lockdown has affected people's thoughts on food, how they look at maybe growing their own food and perhaps even view the, the sort of idea that we need to look more at our own or what we can make in our own backyard um, compa- rather than, I don't know, shipping random things from halfway around the world yeah. that could be contaminated? Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, I think the one thing that came out of the pandemic was at the beginning, people were stuck in the house and the the time, they actually had time to do things. And that's when the whole bread making thing came in and everybody's making their own sardos and banana bread and all those things. And then slowly people, I know that from just talking to people, they said, we actually started cooking as a family. We all took, we all had a chore. We all, we, we started buying things so that we, you know, to prep, like we'd start buying potatoes we started going to the farm shop because it was always open it was never busy mm. you know it was, it was naturally socially distanced because it wasn't massively busy and I think that was I heard people saying oh I am um, we, we started to cook as a family we actually started to sit down and talk more there was none of this running up the stairs with your plate and shutting the bedroom door you know there was more cooking together as a family and I do um, anybody I spoke to said we're, we're going to try really hard and keep that going. And, you know, you know yourself, you can take an hour in the evening when you come home from work and you can, you, can, you can watch TV. Or actually what you can do is you can maybe just take some food and, and prepare it and chat and talk and cut yourself and you know, do things like that. Plus you're teaching your children a valuable skill, a life skill. And if they go away, if they leave home, um, or when they leave home, but at least, you know, I always think if, if children go away with like a repertoire of five dishes, you know, one veggie one, a soup that you can sort of, you know, a base soup, um, you know, things like that. Like even even just making like a shepherd's pie, you know, I think that's that's something that, you know, you need to take, you know, that's the, the I think the thing was that 
people more aware of where their food were from. The other thing I heard people saying was, we go out to restaurants and we would pay, like the, our family of four would pay a hundred quid for, a, you know, for, for dinner. But yet we were able to cook that for, you know, for nothing, but for very little, you know, exactly the same thing and quite easily. And I think maybe it's highlighted that you go to some, not, not all, but you know, fast food places or, or restaurants where they're buying a lot of stuff in, it's highlighting how little they do. You know, because, I mean, I, I know that I used to teach, and whenever, I used to work in restaurants, that was my background, I worked in restaurants, worked in hardcore restaurants, where well, you're in at 8 o'clock in the morning, and you are prepping like hell to be ready for lunch service. Mm-hmm. And I've, I, People don't realise how long that takes. Like, oh you come God. in at 8, like, lunch service can start at 11. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's a serious amount uh-huh. of work to get done in three you hours. You have a massive amount of work to do, in a good restaurant, a mm-hmm. massive amount, because you're doing everything from scratch, you're... You're thinking ahead, you're planning, you know, if you're making stocks, you're thinking that, that'll do tomorrow. Or, and the other thing, um, and I think that's what, that I have, when I used to teach, I'd students say, oh, well, we open at 12, our restaurant opens at 12, and I said, well, what time do you start work at? Oh, quarter to 12. I'm mm-hmm. like, what do you do? Oh, we just take the stuff out of the fridge and just, you know. And it would be things like, you know, like squid that's already been battered and in the freezer, and that just goes in, and then you put the chilli sauce on it. Or you buy in pepper sauce and you put that on top of your chicken and you put some ready-made tobacco onions on it. I mean, that's not food. You know, that isn't food. It's not, it's not, it's just, you know, again, to go back to that thing, you might as well just be eating a loofah, a braised loofah, because it's got probably as much nutrition in it and a much flavour. I mean, unless you're lucky enough to work in somewhere where they have just prep cooks. Yeah. And then they have the, the front line. Yeah, because yeah, you come in, everything's prepped for you already. People have been in since yeah, but 6 a.m. Really. You're not learning how to cook. Well, no. I'm pretty sure chef. that's how they run it at the, at the, the wine bar, yeah. at least uh, at the, the Harbour Bar Bistro and the, the, just that sort of yeah, know, they have food prep. complex. They have the prep and then cook. Mm. But then the, the, the two don't join. I think you need to, I think you need to get it. I think you need to get this instinct for food. And I think you need to take that to go on that journey with the ingredient and take it so if you have a potato that you that you take that potato from the dirt in the ground and you take it to something nice and complex mm. or even something simple I was reading a, a review in the Irish Times and um, it was Catherine Cleary had written it. it was one of her last ones and she'd said something about the waiter had said um, you're buttered queens uh, and he put down this this bowl of buttered queens and she said, is there any nicer phrase in English language than your buttered, than your buttered queens? And that was the thing. The chef had to take the trouble to, to scrub those spots, mm. to cook them beautifully, and then just toss them in butter. And they were talking about simple food. But that was, you know, there's, there's a time where that spot's going to be hard, and there's a time where it's going to be mush. And it's taking that, you know, looking at what can I do to, to make that tasty. But then you have something as beautiful as a, as a really good early potato and you toss it in good butter. You don't really need to do an awful lot of that. But there is the effort. Because I remember a friend of mine had, was an executive chef of a group of pubs. And he had decided he wanted to put cumber earlies on the menu. And again, just put them and scrub them, steam them, and toss them in butter and serve them. And he said all his head chefs were absolutely apoplectic with him. Who's going to wash these? Who's going to wash these? You think, well, you, because you're a chef. And I think the thing about it is a lot of chefs and young chefs, I think they're too good for menial tasks. I mean, I remember when I started restaurants, you'd have picked herbs. You'd have done the dirty work and you'd have got battered for it if it did, you know. But now it's like 
people think, oh, I do an MVQ level two, and I, that qualifies me to be a head chef. And I don't actually know how to cook anything. I don't know how to fillet a fish. I don't know how, to, when I fillet the fish, how to take every, to get as much of that so there's no waste. I don't, and I want to make stock with the bone, or I want, you know, and I think there's, a, we've lost that as well in kitchens because they're, they're, those old skills have kind of gone. Like when I learned to cook, it was like uh, you did old fashioned butchery, you'd have bought in a, a deer and you would have learnt how to do it, you'd have brought in pheasants this time of year and they, they came whole. So there, was, there was no nice way of doing it, you know? So and I think that pigeons. I think that's I mean, it's got to be fresher as well if you're if you're doing that is. all in front of you. Yeah, of course you know, it if is. You're, if you're taking it like instead of having someone do it at another place and then bringing it in and then yeah. did you know what I mean? It's been packaged or backpacked or frozen. Or, and you need to have respect for food, you know. You know, I, I've oh, one of the things I always did when I had a when I taught was that I used to buy whole pig's heads, and then the students would come in and, and there would always be one that cried. And I'm like, well, but look, last week you did duck. Gave you whole ducks. We broke them down. There's no problem. Yeah, but I can see the eyes, and I'm like, but you need to, <laughs> you need to be able to understand that that's, yeah, that's where, where food, food comes, comes from. from. Yeah. No, that duck had eyes. Out of the wee beak, and it was quacking around the place. And then they start crying some more. But that's probably why I don't teach anymore. Because <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think you, I think you've honed in on something that's very sort of typical for. The way we teach people to do anything in twenty um, first century society. I mean, uh, even for example, uh, nursing has become not. It's not a, a degree or a profession where you go into the hospital from from the off and you learn by doing. You you take a three year course in 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 uni and including you know how to reflect on yourself and you know it's all about <laughs> you know like what's what's that have to do with you know well, looking after like someone. <laughs> Exactly. And I think I mean, like, it's not a nursing, catering, cooking is not an academic subject, but they've made it academic. Mm. So if you do a degree in culinary arts, you don't do that much cooking. And, and it's okay, that's grand, as long as you're working in a good restaurant and backing that up. But if you're doing a degree in nursing, you need to be working in a hospital as well. You know, and, and hopefully they do do that. Well, no, they do take them in, but I mean... Yeah, but um, from the start. But, well, there's... there's What you used to have to learn to be a nurse... Um, day that you would have done the mostly practical work over three years has been um, what they did say 30 years ago in those three years has been it's only worth the first year of what they consider to be the nursing degree now and I guarantee the nurses that were trained 30 years ago had a fucking way better idea of what was going on than the ones yeah. that are coming out of uni well, now but and, that's just yeah and also also probably have that thing the no same as to with, the nurses no, I know no, the same with no but the same with cooking you know, um, it's like I'm too good to wash a spot or I'm too good to wipe an arse. You're not, because you need to go back to do. You know, I always say um, I would never ask anybody to do anything that I wouldn't be prepared to do myself. And I, and if that means cleaning a cooker, you know, so be it. But I think you need to take pride in your workplace. And if that means rolling up your sleeves and peeling a spot or washing a dish, you know, do it. Don't you know? Don't be. Don't. I don't think we've got got this thing now where we've become arrogant and we and we don't value those you know those prefer not don't, don't value that yet for example a cleaner or a dishwasher you know you've got to you've got to value those people you know because they're they're, they're, the mo- they're one of the most important people in a busy restaurant now, especially now that and that, that you know they need to be paid a proper living wage they need to be nurtured and they need to be respected as much as the chef who's 
up the front, passing around, putting microcrests and stuff, you know? So, you know what I mean? Definitely. <laughs> well, you know, which direction the, the stain of your sauce goes on the oh, plate is, is just incredibly important. Yeah. Um, Bloody swipes. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, hopefully people will uh, have used this time to, to like try and take more time over the food or like one of the things you said about when people come home and they could either just like slump themselves on the yeah. on the sofa and watch some netflix so they could like take some food and like often people i find don't actually me included this is not me talking like i don't but know what will make them genuinely happiest uh-huh. like it's almost like you have to get through this inertia because there was a there's a great experiment or um, like study that was done um, and it's talked about in this book uh, the organized mind and it was basically this guy talking about whether people like their, they got asked, you know, would you prefer if you were on a train to sit down by yourself and have your, you know, your solitude and your time to think and you just want to be by yourself on the train yeah, or whatever, uh-huh. or would you prefer to be put with someone, uh-huh. like just like someone next to you and you chat to them? Uh-huh. And like blow, most of the people said, you know, I'd prefer my isolation. Oh, really? So then they put them in the train and the, the people who had said they were in isolation and the people or wanted to be sort of isolated and the people who said they wanted to go to, they're like all mixed up. So people got like a random, either they were with someone or not. Everyone that was beside someone said they had a much more enjoyable journey. They got some chat, they got some talking. I, I, I think it's probably the same same sort of idea with, you know, you could sit on, on the sofa and put on, you know, Netflix and watch know, two episodes of Modern Family or something, I don't know, How I Met Your Mother or, um, or you could, you know, put on a good record and pour yourself a nice glass of wine and dance around while you cook some nice food and I guarantee you'll have a better time then than you will just sit and watch Netflix. <laughs> That's it, that's it. And I think sometimes, you know, when you when you do come home from work, you talk about inertia, you want to just flop on the sofa. But actually the most energising thing to do is go and have a walk and then come home and, and, and have some nutritious food, not, you know, not something you're banging into the microwave. And you will feel energised and you'll sleep a lot better. I know that from experience. No, I swim in the sea most evenings and that knocks you out. Oh, yeah, I bet. <laughs> yeah, but that's the cold as well. Your body's using a lot more yeah, energy and to stay warm. And then you warm. come home and, and you have a nice hot drink um, um, and, and have a. Um, the only thing is, I'm always starving. So <laughs> yeah, but that's because you're that's because you're burning yeah. all the calories in the cold. So it's like I try to have something. You know, I always try to have lentils, Josh, because lentils are good even at breakfast. Mm. You have lentils and a poached egg and some roast tomatoes or something like that, and try to you know try to not eat any kind of meat and just. Just get get the protein that way, or beans. You know, butter beans. Love I'm going through a butter bean phase at the moment. So <laughs> oh, why not? Anyway, the, we are very rapidly approaching uh, an hour. So uh, right. if there was anything you'd like to sort of finish up to plug, things people should check out, um, restaurants they should visit, whatever you'd like to sort of make note yeah. of now. Well, I think um, I think with, with with to go back to slow food. I mean, if you check out the Slow Food UK website, it just it shows what what we're doing. You know, and throughout the UK. And I mean, it's it's a great it's a great um, great organisation to be involved with. I, I got first got involved in about twenty thirteen, and in twenty fourteen, um, I was lucky. They have a Terramadri kitchen every year, and they have representatives from every country. So let's say um, Australia will cook alongside chefs from the Congo, and then you then you cook a, you cook a dish from your country, and they sell it. For 10 euros and all that money goes into slow food gardens for africa which is a initiative to, to to put into communities gardens and and the in 2014 i represented the uk and i was in the kitchen with these women from uganda and it was just one of the best experiences i had you know in my life and just cooking with them and 
I did my eels <laughs> and they and they cooked some kind of chicken and, and it was just fantastic and I, I mean that's the thing with soul food it's opened up so many opportunities for me um, I've, I've met some fantastic friends you know and uh, people of like minded people that I would never have met before you know of all different walks of life I think one of the misconceptions about slow food is that it's a very elite kind of middle class thing it's not it's a bunch of middle class hippies yeah yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a hippie uh, but but, you know and I think that's the thing and also you know it's it's very much it's you know it's 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 a grassroots thing and it's about all we want is, is is to make the planet better ultimately it's about the planet and it's about the future it's it's for our children for the next generation um there's an awful lot of people that are in denying climate change and they will they our children will reap that not us you know so that's the thing so i think you know if you get involved it's three quid a month that's we paid more than that for coffee there you know so and it's something that you're doing good with and you're you're getting involved i think now more than ever we need to get involved with things you know get off the sofa do things yeah we've got to find things to, to fill our time now that we can't socialize or have anything fun to do no. <laughs> <laughs> you go online and you know and uh well we're doing a, a virtual festival now uh, globally with terra madre and with it we've got lots of things uh in the uk with that and it's all free or you know there's a cheese tasting you can buy the cheese or you can uh, or you can just sit and watch the video but i think that's the thing we're doing Lots of things like that, and they'll all be archived, available to watch, and some cooking demos, some talks, videos, movies. It's, you know, it's all fantastic. So, oh, that sounds like a lovely place to leave yeah. it. Um, so, yeah, thanks very much. Uh, I will thanks, put links George. to everything that we've talked about in the description, and uh, yeah, go check out Slow Food. <laughs> thanks, Josh. <laughs> thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, thanks for listening.